So as I stated, I don't know where today's going to go. I wrestled back and forth <laughs> this week, but even in the van ride over here, just figuring out, I was like, okay, I probably could just fit this all in this week. But then again, I don't want to rush through any of these passages. And really because, you know, I, I try to do a good job of balancing between here are the passages we're going to turn to and read. Here are the passages I'm going to put on the board or the screen for you guys to look at and see. And here are the passages you guys are going to split up in the groups and look at yourselves. But when I looked at these passages that we're going to look at, I just couldn't, mostly because they're not just one single verse, they're passages, I just couldn't decide on how to do this. I'm like, we've got to look at these, and uh, we'll see how the Spirit leads. If I have commentary on them, or if He has commentary on them, rather, then who knows, we might be done today. But if not, we'll come back next week, and we'll finish this one out. But point, or I guess rule number 11 of how to study the Bible, today we're going to be looking at the attitude factor, and the attitude factor states this. Always be willing to change your beliefs when you discover that they are contrary to the Bible. Now, I've made it my point to uh, not belabor this aspect too often because I hate it when someone says, oh, this is the most important verse ever. Oh, this is the most important concept ever. I think there's probably been two times in this entire class that I have said something like that. One was for the context factor because, man, you're using that every single time you open up your Bible. You should understand what the context is immediately if you come across a difficult passage of Scripture. Okay, what was said before, what was said after, etc. And I think the other time I said it was comparing Scripture with Scripture. Because we need to let the Bible interpret itself. We can't make our own private interpretations of what the Bible says. Because everybody else in Christianity does that. And they rest and twist the Scriptures to their own destruction, Second Peter says. And I think... With those two, but even possibly more important than those two, this factor might just be the most important rule of Bible study that you will ever come across. Because it transcends just figuring out what a difficult passage means. It goes beyond just trying to figure out why is it we believe this doctrine and somebody else doesn't. This has everything to do with your heart attitude towards what God says. If that is off, your walk is going to be screwed up. <laughs> There's just no way of putting it. Our heart attitude towards what His Word says, and even our response to godly men and women, our pastors, our teachers, our leaders, our deacons, what they say from presenting God's Word and our attitude towards that could have an effect on you. The key verses that kind of detail this, look at your Bible, or sorry, look at your passage uh, that's on the top of your study sheet. James 1, verse 22. The Word says, But be ye, what? Doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then he goes into this little word picture, this illustration, if you will, talking about this. If any man be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. Why would a man look into a glass? What's the glass here? A mirror. A, mirror. a natural man looking into a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. And straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You guys have probably heard this illustration before, but think about it. Well, I might want to be careful how I say this. Because some of you did wake up this morning, look yourself in the mirror, straight out of getting in bed, and like, I'm ready for church today. <laughs> yeah, looking at you. No, I'm just kidding. But why would we do that? We wouldn't do that. 
we always look at ourselves in the mirror, either straightway getting up and we're like, oh man, I probably need a shower. Oh man, I still got broccoli in my teeth. I got to brush my teeth. We change our appearance based upon what we see in the mirror so that we don't just go about looking the way that we did. If we do that every single day of our lives for our own bodies, because we love our own selves so much, how much more so ought we to do that every single time we come in contact with God and His Word? There's no difference. We can't just be a hearer Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and not do anything with what God said to us. Verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... So right there, he's comparing the glass with the law, the word of God. And continueth therein, he keeps it, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be what? Blessed in his deed. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This isn't in your notes, but go ahead and add it right next to that passage. It's a great cross-reference for it. Of course, it's 2 Corinthians which implies that the rebuke and the chastening that Paul dished out to the Corinthians in the first letter, hey, lo and behold, they did something with it. They changed. They didn't continue in the sin and the debauchery that they found themselves in in 1 Corinthians. And so in light of that, Paul starts talking to them, and he, he reminds them of a story in Exodus 34, which is an amazing story where Moses is going up into the mountain of God to meet with God, to hear from God. And does anybody remember that story when Moses came down? Not the, the golden calf, but do you guys remember when Moses came down? There was something different about Moses after he met with God. What was it? Yeah, his face was radiating the glory of God. And the Israelites were, oh man, that's too bright. We can't even look at you. So you know what Moses ended up doing? He ended up putting a veil on his face in order to shield the light and the glory that was reflecting off of him from his time spent being with God. And it's interesting because when he went back up into the mountain, you know what God said? Take that off. I want to see you face to face. And so he's talking here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about how Israel, man, they still have that veil. They still want to wear that veil. Kind of been talking about that the last couple of weeks on Wednesday nights in our study of Romans. But now they have that veil on their heart, he said. But look at verse, eight, uh, verse 18. He goes, but we all with open face, meaning we're open before God. We're vulnerable. We're not going to try to hide anything from him because he knows it already. We all with open face beholding as in a what? A glass. The glory of the Lord. What happens when we do? What does he say? I heard it. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, we just saw in James 1, when we look into the glass, the mirror of God's Word, and it's shining back at us what we actually look like and the things in our lives that we need to change in order to be more like His dear Son. Because remember, that's, that's the entire predestinated work that God had orchestrated from in time memorial. He wants a people group to be like His Son. He wants you 
to look more and more like Jesus every single day of your lives. That is only happening, according to this verse, verse 18, when we spend time in the glass, in the glory of the Lord, and when we become changed by doing what He says. you got to meet with Him first and foremost, but your heart has to be right. You have to do and keep what it is that He shows you. If you have an attitude that just says, man, I really don't want to do my Bible reading today, but man, my disciples are going to get on me if I don't have all this done by the time I meet with them. Or man, I really don't want to be in my Bible today because I'm tired and I just want to sleep in and I was up until 2.30 in the morning last night. Are you going to be changed? Are you going to be more like Him? If not then you are not living up to the purpose for which He saved you for. That's huge. Back on your study sheet, look at John 13, 17. He says, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye what? Do them. And that revolves, if you come across something in the Bible that goes contrary to what you believe or what you think or what you hold fast to, you have to be willing to change. And it's interesting to me, I, I really thought about this. This factor has always been about really other churches and, and other doctrines that are taught that go contrary to the Bible. A lot of the friends that you might have interaction with at either school or work or in your neighborhood, or maybe in some cases even within your family, if they go to a church that maybe preaches or teaches a doctrine that's contrary to the Bible and you have conversations with them about these things, this is something good for you to point out to them. Hey, look, I, I know your church might have taught this, and yeah, I know you might have grown up hearing this, but what does the Bible actually say? And then as you present that to them, now the ball's in their court to whether or not they're going to change. And this is how this factor is usually always kind of presented. You'll even see that in these passages here, but I want to bring it a little bit more closer to home with you guys. What preferences are you holding on to, or at least you think is a preference, and you're like, oh, it's okay for me to dabble in this. Really? Does the Bible say that? Or what advice or what decision are you about to make that you think, well, I have liberty in Christ. I'm able to make this decision and there's nothing inherently wrong with it. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it independent about what the Bible says or what my parents might think or what my leaders might tell me, what counsel I might be receiving. I'm just going to go ahead and do it because I have liberty in Christ and we'll just see where that road leads. That's a little bit more where we're going with this one. You see, the factor still applies. You guys might not be in any kind of false doctrine, but is your attitude lining up with what the Bible says, even if you might think or believe or say or do something that's different? Hopefully, either today or next week, you'll see just why that's so important. And then last, Job 42.5. Oh, love this passage. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. I don't know if you guys recall or not, or remember uh, back when we first kind of joined in and I started teaching, I think it was the month of March, I kind of told you guys a little bit of my story from just like the last five years of how God kind of really changed my heart and mind around and, and, and Heather's and just really what kind of led us on this journey and this path to where we are today. And... Uh, it, 
not to get so much into that, but I remember being in the Bible Institute and there was a passage that we memorized, and I've shared with many of you guys, about in Hebrews 4, where it talks about, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. You know, talking about prayer, that when you come to God with a need that you have, go boldly into His throne room. And I remember when Pastor Rory had us memorize that in the Bible, and I'm like, man, what a great passage of Scripture. Like, man, yeah, we should pray more boldly. And I remember being inspired in my mind. But it, it even went beyond that. It's not just head knowledge. I remember feeling inspired in my heart. And there were times where I would even say, Lord, yes, please save that person. Lord, I know you want them saved, so please just do it, whether it's a friend or a family member. And I remember praying like that time to time. But that's where... A few years later, I had to learn that there's a difference between head knowledge, heart knowledge, and life knowledge. Because let me tell you, when you just sign on the dotted line to buy your first house and your wife is five months pregnant with your firstborn and you just lose your job, that's when you really know what it means to come boldly to the throne of grace because you have no other option. No amount of counsel, no amount of encouragement from your friends can get you through that. That was when I really learned what it meant to come boldly to the throne of, the, to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need, in time of trouble. There are many passages that you guys have known since you guys were little kids in VBS. Maybe it really stirred in your mind. Maybe it even stirred in your heart. It might be your favorite verse, your favorite passage. But until you come to a crisis of belief where you are questioned and challenged with, do I really truly believe that? Well, now I'm being put to the test to see if I really truly believe that or not. That's when it goes from head to heart to life application. That's when it goes from, I've heard of this passage in this story with the hearing of my ear, but man, now I see it. Because now I'm living it. There's a difference there. So important concepts. John chapter 3. Flip on over there. So the above verses are the verses that kind of explain the attitude factor. But these are things, again, maybe you guys have friends at school you're trying to witness to. They believe some kind of crazy doctrine that goes contrary to the Bible. Here are some passages you might be able to show them, but I think there's also some application for us as well. So John chapter 3, who comes and sees Jesus in the garden? Nicodemus. He's the religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's kind of on the side of Jesus. He's like, man, you know what? You are a great teacher. I think you're on our side, but he's got some questions. He's looking for some answers. He's not yet quite one of the skeptical Pharisees that wants to put him up on the cross just yet. He comes to Christ and he's asking him all these questions. And this is where Jesus says, man, you have to be born again. And he's like, what does that mean? He tells him about being born of water, birth, and then the spirit, salvation. And look at verse 8. He says, you know, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Look what Nicodemus says in verse 9. He answered and said unto him, How can these things be? He's got questions. But here's the problem. He should have already known. You guys realize, as I've said, I think it was just last week, the Pharisees were the Bible experts of their day. 
They knew the Old Testament inside and out. They had all of the VBS stories memorized. Kept note of everything their Sunday school teachers taught them. And look what Jesus' response is. Because he might just be asking this question to you guys. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? You know what you find from this passage here? He goes on and talks about salvation for the rest of it. But on your outline, we see that religion can blind us to what we should believe. Again, so many people, because of the way they were raised, were brought up believing maybe some strange doctrine from the Bible. And so when you go and you try to show them the Word of God, and they're like, yeah, I don't believe that. Well, that's because they're so caught up and neck deep into their religion, they're not going to hear you, just like Nicodemus was. But then I think about it, huh? You know, many of you guys grew up in the church. Many of you guys, you're so used to the stories. You're so used to what the Bible says that when it comes time for Christ to maybe share something a little bit more personal with you, it goes in one ear and out the other. Because your walk with Christ has become religious. Your daily Bible reading has become no different than rubbing beads, burning incense, saying prayers to Mary, doing a Hail Mary. Your walk with Christ, praying, reading your Bible, serving where there's opportunities to serve, is no different than being a choir boy or an altar boy in some other places. It's become a religion because it's become stale. Because you think, oh, I know that passage. Many, even you, some of you guys, as we turn to John chapter 3, you might have known, oh, here we go, Nicodemus. Yeah, he's going to ask, what does it mean to be born again? And here's what Jesus says. And then, of course, John 3, 16. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm almost certain there's probably at least one of you, maybe, that had that same mindset when you heard we were turning to John chapter 3. How often does that happen when you hear another teacher or your pastor say, hey, turn over to this passage? And you're like, oh, again. Uh, here's what happened in this passage. And you know what you don't even realize? That God might be wanting to share with you something completely new. Has this happened to anybody recently? Where you read a passage for the 13th time in like the last two years, and you're like, holy smokes, I've never seen that before. I've been reading this verse forever. I, I almost, I was getting bored to death having to read it again. And then God just showed it to me as though it was the very first time I had ever seen it. Now just think, does that happen often? No. If we're being honest, more than likely than not, it happens the reverse effect. Where, oh, I know this passage, well, I'm not going to see anything new from this, but yeah, I'll hear the same applications. How many of those opportunities that God wanted to show you something new, but because your heart attitude was not there, you completely missed out on a blessing of what God wanted to share with you. Is your Bible reading going stale? Just might be because of that. Or Bible reading has become no different than a religious act. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. 
Yeah, we're going to split this up into two weeks. All right. Here's what we're going to do. There's 13 verses. I want to read all of them. Benny. Benny and the Jets. No. We're going to start with you. <laughs> we're going to start with you. Thank you, Andy. We're going to start with you. And we're over here to Brock. And we're going to snake around. So Ben, you'll have verse 1. Brock, you'll have verse 2. We're going to snake around till we get to verse 13. Mark chapter 7. Everybody there? If you're ready. <laughs> we'll give you a little bit more time, Brock. Actually, we could snake around. Well, no, wait. That wouldn't make sense. Never mind. I'm just talking now. It's going to be an awkward pause in the podcast. All right. Ben, go ahead. Everyone in Mark chapter 7, follow along. Then came together a man, the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread and defiled what is to say, with unwashing hands they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews except they washed their hands, eat not holding the tradition of the others. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and, met, and, met, uh, and many other things that they are bewitched, they have received the hold as a wash, washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. So you guys catching it so far? Pharisees are going around. They have all of these traditions that they hold so fast to. How they're washing their hands and they're purifying the outside of everything. The pots, the vessels, all of these utensils. Making sure it's all pristine and looks good on the outside. Continue, verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How beat in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines for the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like, such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whosoever curses thy father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is... Uh, Corbin. Yeah. That it is to say, a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do all for his father or his mother. Thank you. The word of God of none effect all right let's see who was paying attention there's one word that shows up again and again and again all throughout this passage what is it tradition tradition the pharisees had this tradition that they held to and again all about the outward appearance and what did jesus have to say about it look again where he said again you honor me with your lips outside, but your heart is far from me. Look what he says in verse 7. They take it a step further, though. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They elevated their own tradition. They elevated their own teachings above 
God and His Word and what He said. And they lay aside the commandments. And He says, you know what it says. And you catch in verse 10 where He said, hey, Moses, which is quoting the Bible, says this. But ye say in verse 11. You know what happens when you let your tradition, the way that you've always done things, rule and lead the way? It's what verse 13 says. You make the word of God of none effect. Believe it or not, yes, this is God's word and his word doesn't return void. But as we're going to see this Wednesday night in Romans 11, uh, there is a point where you can get to the point in your walk where God's word has no effect on you. Where you don't hear from him anymore. Where he could drop a seed into your heart, but it just bounces right off the pavement. Because your heart's not soft and good soil to receive the seed. It's stony and it's hard. And so you won't hear from God. In this context, he's saying it's because your tradition has done that. So on your outline, tradition can bind us to unbiblical beliefs. There's a lot of whacked out crazy traditions that people hold fast to in churches today. I mean, there are some people, when it comes to the idea of modesty, we believe in modesty. And thankfully, we haven't really had to have, I don't think, to my knowledge at least, any conversations with any of you about being immodest, except for Caleb. And that's why he's wearing jeans today and not shorts. Just kidding. Thank you, back row, laughter. I give you guys gold and you just give me stone faces. No. <laughs> But you know, there are some churches that take it a step further where they won't even let you girls wear anything except dresses down to the ankles. Where you guys, you better be wearing slacks and you better be wearing, uh, you're having your shirts tucked in. All this stuff. It's a tradition that they are making it as though it is equal with God's word. Not only that, but even ministry methodology. They're saying, well, this is the way we've always done things, and this is the way we're always going to continue to do things. What if God wants to get in the way there? What if God wants to shake some things up? I can't remember if he mentioned this at winter camp or not, and hopefully you guys remember, or maybe I've just heard it so many times, but you guys ever hear Pastor Rory say that when you plan something, you better make sure your plans are in pencil and not pen, in case God and the Holy Spirit want to change things up? You guys might have plans for what you want to do after high school. You might have plans for what you want to do today. You better make sure those plans are in pencil and nothing permanent because then you will have made your tradition above what God's Word wants. And again, even music choices. John chapter 11, flip on over there. These are crucial passages. These are passages that you guys need to be well acquainted with for the rest of your lives. John 11, one of the longest chapters in the Gospels, specifically the Gospel of John. What happened here? Someone died. Who died? Lazarus. Thank you. Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus is going through town, and He's coming, and He goes to see... Lazarus's sisters, hmm, Mary and Martha. I love this. Look at verse uh, 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and, oh, actually, hold on. 
Oh, nothing. I, I was thinking of another verse. Anyways, yeah, we'll keep reading. Uh, she went and met him, but Mary was still where? Yeah. Megan, I know you taught not too long ago at the girl study about this, and I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm going to cross over anything that you had shared or not, but you guys realize who Mary and Martha are? You guys remember in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus was at their house, Martha was encumbered about with what? Much serving. She was just serving, 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 serving. And the Bible says that Mary was doing that one thing that was needful. What was she doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing from Him. And I love it. Tragedy strikes her home, and she's waiting still in the house. She's waiting on God. She's not making any rash moves. She's not encumbered about again like her sister is. She's waiting still in the house, waiting for Jesus. You know, things might happen in your life, whether it's a tragedy or even just as you're growing up and life is changing and you might feel tempted to want to do something or to act right here. We got to act now. I have to act now. Maybe God just wants you to wait still for him to give you the decision of what to do. In verse 21, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. You can almost read the tone of voice into what she's saying there. Yeah, she knows it, but it's in her head. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Now we know what he's talking about here. He's saying, it's going to happen real soon. But look at what she says. Uh, uh, Martha said unto him, I know, verse 24, that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the when? Biblically, that's correct. Biblically, that's sound. She knows her Bible, but she's missing what Jesus is trying to get to her right now. Because, oh, I already know that scripture. Oh, I already know exactly what you're going to say. I already know exactly what you're going to tell me. I've heard this before from my parents for all of my life. Martha said, I know, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Look at the question he follows up with. Believest thou this? Yeah, she might have known that he was going to rise again at the last day. But what she didn't realize, and what he's challenging and questioning her on right now, is do you believe who I am? Do you know me? Do you know what it is I'm trying to get you to see right now? Yes, future's taken care of. But what about the decisions you're about to make right now, Martha? What about the things that you're so encumbered about right now, Martha? And she saith unto him, verse 27, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She finally saw it. But, on your outline, God will challenge our beliefs. You know, when you guys... Uh, I'm not sure what class, I don't know if it's walking with God. I, could, I think it is walking with God. When you guys eventually take that, and I don't know if or when we'll get to it here, 
But when you guys take that class, you'll see that there's seven stages of spiritual maturity. There's seven stages of your walk with Christ that God will take you through. It might actually be a good study to do here in the future. Not that class, but that section of that. And as you grow and you mature in your walk with God, there eventually comes a point, like I had already discussed earlier today, where it's called a crisis of belief. Where you are challenged, like never before in your life, with a trial that you never thought you would see in your life. Do I actually believe these things? Is it wrong for me to even think that out loud? To say that out loud? Do I really believe these things? Because God, I gotta be honest, right now it seems like you're really silent and getting me through this. It's gonna come for you all if you're saved. That's the reason why we go through passages like this, so that they become anchors and foundational rocks that you can cling to so that when those storms of life do come for each and every single one of you, you will be able to navigate through the storm and come out the other side stronger than you were before to the point where after the storm, you'll look back and you'll do something you never thought you would do during the course of that storm where you will be thanking God for that trial in your life where you will thank Him for the pain that you went through during that time because it made you more like Him. It's hard to do in the midst of that trial. James even talks about that. First Peter talks about that. It's hard when you're suffering and going through a trial to thank God. But man, I'll tell you what, when you come through the other side and you finally learn the reason why He put you through that trial and you finally grab a hold of what it is He wanted you to get from that, and you change and you grow from it, you will be thankful. But it's going to take challenging what you already know. It's going to take challenging what you already believe. Not to so much of an extreme extent, but even just in the last couple of months and, and even kind of years, Heather and I would kind of battle with, you know, all those passages in Proverbs where it talks about train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart from it, and, and you know, spare not for his crying, but beat him with the rod. There have been times where Heather and I, uh, that doesn't seem to be working. Was God wrong on that? Well, why it's gotten better now, but there was a point where we would just spank that kid and like he would go back and turn around and do the same thing again. And I would actually have prayers with God. I was like, Lord, uh, I don't get it. Why is this passage not working? I tell him what to do. He doesn't do it. I beat him for it. He knows he's going to get beat for it. He goes around and does it again. Oh, 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 yeah. That's right. I forgot that was me. It's funny how things like that paint a picture of your life and your walk. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. We'll get these next two passages and we're going to pick up with 2 Kings next week because that's a doozy. You don't have to worry about bringing these back Keep this study sheet in case you took notes on it. Put it in your binder. I hope you guys still have your binders and you're putting these sheets in there. But I'll have more of these printouts for you next week for us to finish and do the activity down below. Mark chapter 10. If you guys want to study it out later, I was going to take you guys there, but uh, I never saw this before. But if you keep reading in John 11, when Mary eventually comes out, you know what she does? She runs out to Christ and she throws herself back at his feet. I never saw that before. Very familiar with John 11, but just this morning, 
As I'm looking through the passage, huh, Mary is that yet again back at his feet. And then I saw something I never saw again. The very next chapter, chapter 12, Martha, go figure, is up running around serving. <laughs> you know what Mary does? Gets on her knees and washes his feet. Man, she's always at his feet. Always at the feet of Jesus, hearing from him, being with him, and submitting to him. That's what that posture is. Talked a lot about submission last Wednesday night. And that's what she's found doing anytime her and her sister are around. To compare and contrast, Luke 10, John 11, John 12. Check it out later. Mark 10. Look at verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. Actually, you know what we're going to do? Where did we leave off? Was it with uh, Hannah? You're going to read verse 17, and then we're going to snake around up to 26. Pay attention, everybody in Mark 10. Hopefully you are now. All right, go ahead, Hannah. When he, was, when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these, all these have I observed from my Then Jesus, beholding him, that, <coughs> beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he said at... He was sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he was sad at the saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Yeah. And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Hmm. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished at another saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? <laughs> when was the last time you asked that question? Who can be saved? I'll have a quick comment on this one just because I was thinking about it again this morning. I'm like, eh, maybe it needs to be said. In some churches today, there's this uh, teaching of easy believism. In other words, if you pray a prayer, repeat after me, you're saved. We talked about it this past Wednesday night. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You guys have heard the ABCs. You guys have heard calling upon the name of the Lord. And so many people have prayed a prayer and they think because, yeah, I genuinely do believe that, that they think that that's okay. But they don't realize that 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, right before it goes into talking about the gospel in verses 3 and 4, says, hey, yeah, you're saved unless you believed in vain, unless it was just head knowledge, unless it was just an intellectual assent. I talked Wednesday night about how, you know what, not that, that many people doubt the fact that Jesus died. 
And how easy is it for someone just to say, yeah, I believe God rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe that. I grew up being taught that at this church. So I prayed that prayer. Okay. If a faith that doesn't change you, or if your faith doesn't change you, can it really save you? You need to ask yourself that question. If you've not been changed since that point of decision where you claim to have gotten saved, if you've not seen a change, if there's not been any kind of a difference at all, can you really say you got saved? You know what's funny? Me and Bobby Schilling kind of have a, a similar testimony in this where we think we know that point of decision for both of our lives, but honestly, it might have been at a different point for us. I don't know if any of you guys can identify with this either, but I know for me, the moment when I called upon Christ to save me, I was at camp and I was alone in my cabin. Everybody else was playing flashlight tag. It was just me and God. I prayed to receive Christ. Immediately, I felt a peace. When we got back from camp, I started telling uh, my, the people who invited me to church, told them what happened to me, told my parents, told the kids at school. But then when I got back to school, when summer was done and I went back to school, I got right back into the crowd that I was with, fell back into doing the things I was doing before I was saved. I remember being convicted. I remember I wanted to read my Bible. And so for me, I count that as, yeah, I was saved, but I just walked away. Going to church every single Sunday, but I walked away. But then two years later, when I was back at camp, and God got a hold of me, threw me down on my face, and just basically revealed to me, you were dating the world for the last two years of your saved Christian life. I remember being broken, and I remember realizing that I'm going to die and have no crowns to give him when he gave everything for me, and I have nothing to show as a thank you to him. I remember being convicted about that, and though I didn't confess, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I believe Christ died on the cross, I did confess that, man, I'm not living right. And I did believe that what he did for me, I've not really shown anything for it. And so was that the moment of my actual salvation? Because at that camp, that was the point of my no return. I never once again went back to the world system. I was changed ever since then. I saw a change the camp two years prior, but I don't know. It might be the other one. Bobby Shelley has a similar testimony. You can ask him about it next time you guys see him. I say all that to say, do you guys realize just how dark this day and age really truly is? There was never a question in all throughout the last 2,000 years of the church's history, never a question whether or not someone was genuinely saved or not. You knew it. Because for about 1,500 years of church history, if you professed Christ and you had a changed life, you held fast to it until your death when you were martyred. And those who didn't because they were afraid of the sword, well, maybe they weren't saved. And then once persecution wasn't so bad and the Bible got back into the hands of the common man the last 500 years of church history or so, you still knew it. Because, man, when people got saved, they became George Whitfield, They became David Livingstone. They became George Mueller. They became all of these great pillars of the faith who did great things for God and their fruit. And everyone knew, man, that guy was a drunkard. He is not the same anymore. You knew it. This day and age... I mean, they're here. They're kind of a little different since they said they got saved, but uh, I don't know. Maybe they're just like me, where they were 
saved but wandering. Or maybe they're lost and maybe I was lost for those two years. Where are you at? Have you seen a change in your life since the moment you got saved? In light of that, that's why <laughs> that wasn't the point I was going with it on this one, but when it says, who then can be saved? How hard is it? He says twice in there, how hard is it for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, salvation? Pretty rough when you consider the day and age in which we are. Not because you have to do something, but because if a faith that doesn't change you, can it really be said to have saved you? These are things you guys might have to ponder. If it doesn't change your heart. You see the point on your outline with this guy? He knew what he had to do. <laughs> Father, I've kept the law since my youth. I know the Ten Commandments. But sometimes we choose not to believe. Many of you guys might hear counsel from your leaders, from your disciples, from your teachers saying, that's not wise. And you choose not to believe and take their words for it. Might be playing with fire. Last passage, turn over to Luke chapter 6. Let me just tell you guys on that note, we care. We care about the decisions you guys make. We care about the decisions you're going to make. We are here for you. You are not bothering us with any questions or counsel that you're seeking from us. You are not bothering us. We are here because we want to help. Because we don't want to see you guys make the same mistakes that some of us made in here. We're here for you. Luke 6, verse 46. Question to ask all of you. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's because your heart isn't willing to change your beliefs to match what the Bible says. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he's like. He's like unto a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not, because he's looking into a glass, saying, I look good. I'm ready for church. He's like a man without a foundation, built in house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. Oh, and don't miss the last part here. And the ruin of the house, of that house, your house, was great. You hear the word, and you don't change your beliefs, you don't change your attitude to line up with what the word of God says, your ruin might be great. You might become a proverb one day. The Bible talks about how some people, they become actual proverbs. Man, don't be like so-and-so. You know what so-and-so did? And then you tell their story. That might be you. You might be the so-and-so that we tell future generations don't make the same stupid mistake that they did. I don't want that to be said of any of you. I don't want you to become a proverb. I want you guys to build your house upon a rock. Your outline, what we believe determines how strong the foundation of our life is. Your behavior will always reveal your true beliefs. Hey, 
I had my first girlfriend freshman year of high school. We were together for one week and I told her I love you. <laughs> one week later she dumped me. <laughs> Why do I share all that? Well, maybe that's just a pre precursor. All that and more when we start biblical relationships in January. But today marks one year since Heather and I came into the Sunday school class and uh, we're with you guys. So please don't break up with me when I say that I love you. That was actually supposed to be very sentimental. Thank you, Andy. I've not said it yet. I'm very selective as to when I say it because of the tragedy I went through freshman year of high school. True. <laughs> well, how long was it you and I dated? I, I mean, I said I love you first. Yeah, and uh, I think I gave you finger guns. No. <laughs> All right. I love you guys. I'm here for you. All of your leaders are here for you. And I hope you see that. We care about the decisions you have, the decisions you're about to make. We want to see them line up with the Word of God. Do you see how this kind of goes beyond just a false doctrine? Yeah, we could talk all day long about the other churches and what they believe and how we can show in the Bible how that doesn't match up and they are not willing to change. This goes beyond that. It goes into the decisions that you make on a daily basis as well. So we care. So, you guys have anything? We're here for you. And that in mind, let's go ahead and pray.